Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. My uh, rant today about Ron DeSantis and uh, pulling a Jeb Bush, I'll get to that in just a moment. And uh, also, is the uh, January 6th commission going to uh, basically nail Trump's ass to the wall today as the perpetrator of this attempted coup? I suspect so. And and uh, the New York Times is reporting that half of Republicans now are ready to move on past Trump. And uh, six out of 10 Republicans think that he's uh, largely responsible for the insurrection, which is like, gee, rocket science, anybody? But that said, the uh, the thing that shocked me the most was the instant translation by the the white supremacists, the white racists out there, the, the followers of Donald Trump, this, this movement to maintain a white America, white power in America, be wild was immediately interpreted as be violent, be murderous. That's pretty astonishing. I think it's important for us to remember, I was listening to The Daily, the New York Times podcast yesterday. I often listen to it when I'm, I'm uh, driving or walking home from work. They were talking about how when Barack Obama was elected our first black president in 2008, the backlash, the white backlash was absolutely massive. And that led to the Tea Party in 2009. It led to a massive Republican effort to, to seize power at the state level in 2010. Over 500 state House and Senate seats flipped from Democrat to Republican in the election of 2010 as a result of this massive effort across the nation that was being promoted by white racists. And it caused me to think of how during Reconstruction in the, in the late 1860s, early 1870s, there were numerous black people elected across the South because African Americans could suddenly vote, right? Free, people who had been freed from slavery could suddenly vote. And in fact, the, uh, the legislature of one of the Carolinas was actually taken over by African-Americans. In other words, there was enough of them elected that they had a majority power. And the backlash to that was just nuts. I mean, there was this, this huge backlash to it. You know, I thought that was pretty consequential. And I think that that's what we're seeing again. Tracy in Ladue, Missouri. Hey, Tracy, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up? 
I'm making my best to talk to people to try to get them to understand what's going on when they start ranting about crazy stuff. I found out that many people have no idea what an insurrection is. They have no idea what a coup is. And so they think we're making up these words to get Trump and, 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 and get back at the uh, Republicans for winning it. Makes sense. So, and I even explain, you know, even the CRT, you know, critical race, they have no idea what that is. Right. And when I explain to them that it can't even be taught in grade school, it's a high, it's a college course for lawyers only. No, it's not. They teach it in my school. I said, no, they're not. Yeah. And, they, you know, so they're just, and if they're found wrong, they just lie. Well, they're teaching it in my school, so I, I know they're teaching it. And you would say, no, they're not. And I'm going to call your school district and ask. And I did call one school district and ask, and they said no. And the lady said, well, they lying to you because my kid brought home a book that was talking about a uh, 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 critical race theory. So, I don't, I don't understand because there's no educated, no information, unwilling, just completely unwilling to rationalize anything. Has this become sort of kind of like a uh, personality disorder that these people have developed under Trump and his crew? Not just a cult, but actually a personality disorder. It may well be, Stephanie. I I, I think we're in the kind of fuzzy area of definitions here, but it it is, I mean, frankly, I think this is all about power, and you could argue that 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 stems from a personality disorder, too. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's a tough one. Stephanie, thank you. Uh, Michelle in Lansing, Michigan. Hey, Michelle. I was very impressed by the woman that uh, when stopped in the carpool lane that required two people, she... uh, said, well, I do have two people by the law. Right, she's pregnant, yeah. Yeah, that also applies to federal taxes and all sorts of other things. They can't say it in one instance, it's a child, and then... uh, So you should be able to claim a deduction a year, you know, nine months before normal. Correct. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, they they did the same thing with the mask versus the... uh, abortion issue too yeah with the mask it was my body my choice with this other one it's my body your choice uh excellent point stick around it's the 7th of the january 6th hearings the select committee to investigate the january 6th attack on the united states capitol will be in order without objection the chair is authorized to declare the committee in recess at any point Pursuant to House Deposition Authority Regulation 10, the chair announces the committee's approval to release the deposition material presented during today's hearing. Good afternoon. When I think about the most basic way to explain the importance of elections in the United States, there's a phrase that always comes to mind. It may sound straightforward, but it's meaningful. We settle our differences at the ballot box. Sometimes my choice prevails, sometimes yours does. But it's that simple. We cast our votes, we count the votes. If something seems off with the results, we can challenge them in court, and then we accept the results. When you're on the losing side, that doesn't mean you have to be happy about it. And in the United States, there's plenty you can do and say so. You can protest, you can organize, you can get ready for the next election to try to make sure your side has a better chance the next time the people sell their differences at the ballot box. But you can't turn violent. 
You can't try to achieve your desired outcome through force or harassment or intimidation. Any real leader who sees their supporters going down that path, approaching that line, has a responsibility to say, stop. We gave it our best. We came up short. We try again next time because we settle our differences at the ballot box. On December 14, 2020, the presidential election was officially over. The Electoral College had cast its vote. Joe Biden was the president-elect of the United States. By that point, many of Donald Trump's supporters were already convinced that the election had been stolen because that's what Donald Trump had been telling them. So what Donald Trump was required to do in that moment, what would have been required of any American leader was to say, we did our best and we came up short. He went the opposite way. He seized on the anger he had already stoked among his most loyal supporters. And as they approached the line, he didn't wave them off. He urged them on. Today, the committee will explain how, as a part of his last-ditch effort to overturn the election and block the transfer of power, Donald Trump summoned a mob to Washington, D.C., and ultimately spurred that The hearings are live. Here's Benny Thompson. ...a violent attack on our democracy. Our colleagues, Ms. Murphy of Florida and Mr. Raskin of Maryland, will lay out this story. First, I'm pleased to recognize our distinguished vice chair, Ms. Cheney of Wyoming, for any opening comments she'd care to offer. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Our committee did not conduct a hearing last week, but we did conduct an on-the-record interview of President Trump's former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. If you have watched these hearings, you've heard us call for Mr. Cipollone to come forward to testify. He did and Mr. Cipollone's testimony met our expectations. We will save for our next hearing President Trump's behavior during the violence of January 6th. Today's hearing will take us from December 14th, 2020, when the Electoral College met and certified the results of the 2020 presidential election up through the morning of January 6th. You will see certain segments of Pat Cipollone's testimony today. We will also see today how President Trump summoned a mob to Washington and how the president's stolen election lies provoked that mob to attack the Capitol. And we will hear from a man who was induced by President Trump's lies to come to Washington and join the mob and how that decision has changed his life. Today's hearing is our seventh. We have covered significant ground over the past several weeks. And we have also seen a change in how witnesses and lawyers in the Trump orbit approach this committee. Initially, their strategy in some cases appeared to be to deny and delay. Today, there appears to be a general recognition that the committee has established key facts, including that virtually everyone close to President Trump, his Justice Department officials, his White House advisors, his White House counsel, his campaign, all told him the 2020 election was not stolen. This appears to have changed the strategy for defending Donald Trump. Now the argument seems to be 
that President Trump was manipulated by others outside the administration, that he was persuaded to ignore his closest advisors, and that he was incapable of telling right from wrong. This new strategy is to try to blame only John Eastman or Sidney Powell or Congressman Scott Perry or others and not President Trump. In this version, the president was, quote, poorly served by these outside advisors. The strategy is to blame people his advisors called, quote, the crazies for what Donald Trump did. This, of course, is nonsense. President Trump is a 76-year-old man. He is not an impressionable child. Just like everyone else in our country, he is responsible for his own actions and his own choices. As our investigation has shown, Donald Trump had access to more detailed and specific information showing that the election was not actually stolen than almost any other American. And he was told this over and over again. No rational or sane man in his position could disregard that information and reach the opposite conclusion. And Donald Trump cannot escape responsibility by being willfully blind. Nor can any argument of any kind excuse President Trump's behavior during the violent attack on January 6th. As you watch our hearing today, I would urge you to keep your eye on two specific points. First, you will see evidence that Trump's legal team, led by Rudy Giuliani, knew that they lacked actual evidence of widespread fraud sufficient to prove that the election was actually stolen. They knew it, but they went ahead with January anyway. And second, consider how millions of Americans were persuaded to believe what Donald Trump's closest advisors in his administration did not. These Americans did not have access to the truth like Donald Trump did. They put their faith and their trust in Donald Trump. They wanted to believe in him. They wanted to fight for their country, and he deceived them. For millions of Americans, that may be painful to accept, but it is true. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Without objection, the chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Florida, Ms. Murphy, and a gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin, for opening statements. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that then-President Donald Trump lost in a free and fair election. And yet, President Trump insisted that his loss was due to fraud in the election process, rather than to the democratic will of the voters. The President continued to make this claim despite being told again and again by the courts, by the Justice Department, by his campaign officials, and by some of his closest advisors that the evidence did not support this assertion. This was the big lie, and millions of Americans were deceived by it. Too many of our fellow citizens still believe it to this day. It's corrosive to our country and damaging to our democracy. As our committee has shown in prior hearings, Following the election, President Trump relentlessly pursued multiple interlocking lines of effort, all with a single goal, to remain in power despite having lost. The lines of effort were aimed at his loyal Vice President, Mike Pence, at state election and elected officials, and at the U.S. Department of Justice. The President pressured the Vice President to obstruct the process to certify the election result, 
He demanded that state officials find him enough votes to overturn the election outcome in that state. And he pressed the Department of Justice to find widespread evidence of fraud. When justice officials told the president that such evidence did not exist, the president urged them to simply declare that the election was corrupt. On December 14th, the Electoral College met to officially confirm that Joe Biden would be the next president. The evidence shows that once this occurred, President Trump and those who were willing to aid and abet him turned their attention to the joint session of Congress scheduled for January 6th, at which the vice president would preside. In their warped view, this ceremonial event was the next, and perhaps the last, inflection point that could be used to reverse the outcome of the election before Mr. Biden's inauguration. Now, we will show you what other actions President Trump was taking between December 14th, 2020 and January 6th. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I yield to the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin. Thank you, Ms. Murphy. Throughout our hearings, you've heard how President Trump made baseless claims that voting machines were being manipulated by foreign powers in the 2020 election. You've also heard Trump's Attorney General, Bill Barr, describe such claims as complete nonsense, which he told the president. Let's review that testimony. I saw absolutely zero basis for the allegations but they were made in such a sensational way that they obviously were influencing a lot of people, uh, members of the public, that there was this systemic corruption in the system and that their votes didn't count and that these machines controlled by somebody else were actually determining it, which was complete nonsense. And it was being laid out there. And I told them that it was, that it was uh, crazy stuff and they were wasting their time on that. And uh, was doing a great, grave disservice to the country. We've learned that President Trump's White House counsel agreed with the Department of Justice about this. Attorney General Barr made a public announcement on December 1st, less than a month that he had seen no suspended fraud sufficient to Fair to say that by December 1st, you had reached the same conclusion. It's fair to say that I agree with Attorney General Barr. No. Attorney General Barr's conclusion on December 1st, um, yes, I did, and I supported that conclusion. However, the strong rejection of the Attorney General and the White House counsel of these claims did not stop the President from trying to press them in public. But that's not all he did. Indeed, as you'll see in this clip, the President asked Attorney General Bill Barr to have the Department of Justice seize voting machines in the states. My recollection is the president said something like, uh, well, we could get to the bottom, you know, some people say we could get to the bottom of this if, if the department sees the machines. It was a typical 
way of raising a point. And I said, absolutely not. There's no probable cause, and we're not going to seize any machines. And that was that. Yeah. But this wasn't the end of the matter. On the evening of December 18th, 2020, Sidney Powell, General Michael Flynn, and others entered the White House for an unplanned meeting with the president, the meeting that would last multiple hours and become hot-blooded and contentious. The executive order behind me on the screen was drafted on December the 16th, just two days after the Electoral College vote, by several of the president's outside advisors over a luncheon at the Trump International Hotel. As you can see here, this proposed order directs the Secretary of Defense to seize voting machines, quote, effective immediately, but it goes even further than that. Under the order, President Trump would appoint a special counsel with the power to seize machines and then charge people with crimes with all resources necessary to carry out her duties. The specific plan was to name Sidney Powell as special counsel, the Trump lawyer who had spent the post-election period making outlandish claims about Venezuelan and Chinese interference in the election, among others. Here's what White House counsel Pat Cipollone had to say about Sidney Powell's qualifications to take on such expansive authority. I don't think Sidney Powell would say that I thought it was a good idea to appoint her special counsel. I was vehemently opposed. I didn't think she should have been appointed to anything. Sidney Powell told the president that these steps were justified because of her evidence of foreign interference in the 2020 election. However, as we've seen, Trump's allies had no such evidence and, of course, no legal authority for the federal government to seize state voting machines. Here's Mr. Cipollone again denouncing Sidney Powell's terrible idea. There was a real question in my mind and a real concern, you know, particularly after the attorney general had reached the conclusion that there wasn't sufficient election fraud to change the outcome of the election. When other people kept suggesting that there was, the answer is, what is it? And at some point, you have to put up or shut up. That was my view. Why was this, on a broader scale, a bad idea for the country? To have the federal government seize voting machines? That's a terrible idea for the country. That's not how we do things in the United States. Uh, there's no legal authority to do that. And there is a way to contest elections, you know, that that happens all the time. But the idea that the federal government could come in and seize election machines, you know, that that's I don't I don't understand why we even have to tell you why that's a bad idea. It's a terrible idea. For all of its absurdity, the December 18th meeting was critically important because President Trump got to watch up close for several hours as his White House counsel and other White House lawyers destroyed the baseless factual claims and ridiculous legal arguments being offered by Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn, and others. President Trump now knew all these claims were nonsense not just from his able White House lawyers, but also from his own Department of Justice officials and indeed his own campaign officials. As White House counsel Pat Cipollone told us, 
respect to the whole election fraud issue. That to me, it's sort of if you're going to make those kind of claims, and people were open to them early on because people were making all sorts of claims. And the real question is, show the evidence, okay? It wasn't just the Justice Department, the Trump campaign, and the Trump White House lawyers who knew it. Even Rudy Giuliani's own legal team admitted that they did not have any real evidence of fraud sufficient to change the election result. Here's an email from Rudy Giuliani's lead investigator, Bernie Carrick, on December 28, 2020, to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Mr. Carrick did not mince any words. We can do all the investigations we want later, but if the president plans on winning, it's the legislators that have to be moved, and this will do just that. Mr. Carrick wanted the president to win. What he didn't say in this email was what he would later tell the select committee in a letter that his lawyer wrote to us in November. The letter said, quote, it was impossible for Mr. Carrick and his team to determine conclusively whether there was widespread fraud or whether that widespread fraud would have altered the outcome of the election. In other words, even Rudy Giuliani's own legal team knew before January 6th that they hadn't collected enough actual evidence to support any of their stolen election claims. Here's what Trump campaign senior advisor Jason Miller told the committee about some of the so-called evidence of fraud that the campaign had seen from the Giuliani team. So do you know what the examples of fraud numbers, names, and supporting evidence was that you sent to Mo Brooks's office? And when I say you, I mean you or the campaign. There are some very, very general uh, documents as far as um, uh, as far as, uh, say, for example, here are the handful of dead people in several different states. Um, here are uh, explanations on a couple of the legal challenges as far as the saying that the, um, the rules were changed in an unconstitutional manner. Uh, but it was to say that it was thin uh, is, is probably an understatement. Here's how President Trump's deputy campaign manager described the evidence of fraud that the campaign had seen. You never came to uh, learn or understand that Mayor Giuliani had uh, had produced evidence of election fraud. Is that fair? That's fair. And here's testimony that we received from the Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives, Rusty Bowers, about an exchange that he had with Rudy Giuliani after the election. At some point, did uh, one of them uh, make a comment that uh, they didn't have evidence, but they had a lot of theories? That was Mr. Giuliani. Chief of Staff Mark Meadows told people that he thought Trump should concede around the time the Electoral College certified the result. But nonetheless, he later worked to try to facilitate President Trump's wishes. Here's what Cassidy Hutchinson told us. During this period, he, um, I perceived his goal with all of this to keep Trump in office. Um, you know, he had very seriously and deeply considered the allegations of voter fraud. But when he began acknowledging that maybe there wasn't enough voter fraud 
to overturn the election. You know, I, I witnessed him start to explore potential constitutional loopholes more extensively, which I then connected with John Eastman's theories. The startling conclusion is this. Even an agreed-upon complete lack of evidence could not stop President Trump, Mark Meadows, and their allies from trying to overturn the results of a free and fair election. Ms. Hutchinson reported that the meeting in the West Wing was unhinged. The meeting finally broke up after midnight during the early morning of December 19. Cassidy Hutchinson captured the moment of Mark Meadows escorting Rudy Giuliani off the White House grounds to, quote, make sure he didn't wander back into the mansion. Certain accounts of this meeting indicate that President Trump actually granted Ms. Powell security clearance and appointed her to a somewhat ill-defined position of special counsel. He asked Pat Cipollone if he had the authority to name me special counsel, and he said yes. And then he asked him if he had the authority to give me whatever security clearance I needed, and Pat Cipollone said yes. And then the president said, okay, you know, I'm naming her that, and I'm giving her security clearance. And then shortly before we left and it totally blew up was when uh, Cipollone and or Hirschman and whoever the other young man was said, you can name her whatever you want to name her, and no one's going to pay any attention to it. How did he respond? How did the president respond to that? Uh, something like, you see what I deal with, I deal with this all the time. Over the ensuing days, no further steps were taken to appoint Sidney Powell, but there is some ambiguity about what the president actually said and did during the meeting. Here is how Pat Cipollone described it. I don't know what her understanding of whether she had been appointed, what she had been appointed to. Okay. In my view, she hadn't been appointed to anything and ultimately wasn't appointed to anything because there had to be other steps taken. So that was my view when I left the meeting, but she may have a different view and others may have a different view and, and the president may have a different view. As you listen to these clips, remember that Ms. Powell, the person who President Trump tried to make special counsel, was ultimately sanctioned by a federal court and sued by Dominion Voting Systems for defamation. In her own defense to that lawsuit, Sidney Powell argued that, quote, no reasonable person would conclude that the statements were truly statements of fact. Not long after Sidney Powell, General Flynn, and Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani left the White House in the early hours of the morning, President Trump turned away from both his outside advisors' most outlandish and unworkable schemes and his White House counsel's advice to swallow hard and accept the reality of his loss. Instead, Donald Trump issued a tweet that would galvanize his followers, unleash a political firestorm, and change the course of our history as a country. Trump's purpose was to mobilize a crowd. And how do you mobilize a crowd in 2020? With millions of followers on Twitter, President Trump knew exactly how to do it. At 1.42 a.m. on December 19, 2020, shortly after the last participants left the unhinged meeting, Trump sent out the tweet with his explosive invitation. Trump repeated his big lie and claimed it was, quote, statistically impossible 
to have lost the 2020 election before calling for a big protest in D.C. on January 6th, be there, will be wild. Trump supporters responded immediately. Women for America First, a pro-Trump organizing group, had previously applied for a rally permit for January 22nd and 23rd in Washington, D.C., several days after Joe Biden was to be inaugurated. But in the hours after the tweet, they moved their permit to January 6th, two weeks before. This rescheduling created the rally where Trump would eventually speak. The next day, Ali Alexander, leader of the Stop the Steal organization and a key mobilizer of Trump supporters, registered wildprotest.com, named after Trump's tweet. Wildprotest.com provided comprehensive information about numerous newly organized protest events in Washington. It included event times, places, speakers, and details on transportation to Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, other key Trump supporters, including far-right media personalities, began promoting the wild protest on January 6th. It's Saturday, December 19th. The year is 2020. And one of the most historic events in American history has just taken place. President Trump, in the early morning hours today, tweeted that he wants the American people to march on Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. And now Donald Trump is calling on his supporters to descend on Washington, D.C., January 6th. He is now calling on we the people to take action and to show our numbers. We're going to only be saved by millions of Americans moving to Washington, occupying the entire area, if, if necessary, storming right into the Capitol. You know, there, we, we know the rules of engagement. If you have enough people, you can push down any kind of a fence or a wall. This could be Trump's last stand. And it's a time when he has specifically called on his supporters to arrive in D.C. That's something that may actually be the big push Trump supporters need to say, this is it. It's now or never. You better understand something, son. You better understand something. Red wave, bitch. Red wave. This is going to be a red wedding going down January 6th. On that day, Trump says, show up for a protest. It's going to be wild. And based on what we've already seen from the previous events, I think Trump is absolutely correct. Motherfucker, you better look outside. <laughs> you better look out January 6th. Kick that fucking door open. Look down the street. There's going to be a million plus geeked up armed Americans. <laughs> the time for games is over. The time for action is now. Where were you when history called? Where were you when you and your children's destiny and future was on the line? In that clip, you heard one of Trump supporters predict a red wedding, which is a pop culture reference to mass slaughter. But the point is that Trump's call to Washington reverberated powerfully and pervasively online. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. 
Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Today we're reading from Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America by Martha S. Jones. In the introduction, Rights of Colored Men, Debating Citizenship in Antebellum America is the title of the introduction. The title of William Yeats' 1838 treatise, Rights of Colored Men, aptly captures the subject of this book. The 19th century Americans for whom Yeats wrote were fascinated by a juridical puzzle. Not slaves, nor aliens, nor the equals of free white men, who were former slaves and their descendants before the law. None were more interested in this question than black Americans themselves, and Birthright Citizens takes up their point of view to tell the history of race and rights in the antebellum United States. The pressures brought on by so-called black laws and colonization schemes, especially a radical strain, explain why free people of color feared their forced removal from the United States. In response, they claimed an unassailable belonging, one grounded in birthright citizenship. No legal text expressly provided for such, but their ideas anticipated the terms of the 14th Amendment. Set in Baltimore, a place between North, South, and the Atlantic world, this book traces the scenes and the debates through which black Americans developed ideas about citizenship and claims to the rights that citizens enjoyed. Along the way, they engaged with legislators, judges, and laws, everyday administrators. From the court, local courthouse to the chambers of high courts, the rights of colored men came to define citizenship for the nation as a whole. Yates authored, authored the very first legal treatise on the rights of free black Americans. It was 1838 when rights of colored men to suffrage, citizenship, and trial by jury was published in Philadelphia. He was not one of antebellum America's highly regarded legal minds. Some say he read law for a time, although there's no evidence that he was admitted to the bar. Instead, Yates's career began with a short-lived stint as a newspaper publisher in his hometown of Troy, New York. His bona fides on the subject of race and citizenship were best established during his years as an agent for the American Anti-Slavery Society. While many abolitionists maintained a self-conscious distance from free black communities, Yates centered his work there. The opposition of free people, excuse me, the oppression of free people of color was a companion to slavery in Yates's view, with anti-slavery work necessarily extending into questions of free people's status. Penning rights of colored men was the pinnacle of this mission. Yates placed a powerful instrument of authority in the hands of free African Americans and their allies. The antebellum legal treatise was a key tool in the standardization and dissemination of legal knowledge and was typically devoted to the comprehensive synthesis of a single branch of law. By the late 1830s, Yates was following on the success of James Kent's commentaries in Joseph Story's treatise series. The genre had come to be associated with the concepts of law <clears throat> excuse me, as scientific knowledge, legal education as systemic, and the profession as respectable. 
Yeats successfully adopted legal culture's own tool to such a degree that readers from the 19th century until today have regarded him as an authority on free black legal status. But Yeats's text was, was also a work of advocacy. Rights of colored men received prominent notices in the black and abolitionist press and could be purchased at local anti-slavery society offices. As a result, the work served as a probing legal treatise that fueled activist arguments. Yeats provides a window in the, into the position that some activists, black and white, took on race and citizenship in the end of the 1830s. Law was an instrument of change, and Yeats Fort rightly explained his objective to undermine prejudice against color. Racism had led to legal disability, exclusion from militia service, naturalization, suffrage, public school, schooling, ownership of real property, office holding, and courtroom testimony. Yates was especially unsettled by the disenfranchisement of free black men in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and more recently Pennsylvania. Assembling evidence from legal culture, he believed, would help establish the rights and citizenship of free black people. Yates began with a story of the nation's origin. <clears throat> the establishment of the United States, he said, had been at the outset a revolutionary, republican, and an enlightened undertaking that was untainted by racism or distinctions among and between races. This had been possible in the wake of the American Revolution because the founding generation knew firsthand the contributions black people had made to independence through military service and through labor. American law had originally been colorblind as evidenced by the absence of racial distinctions in founding documents such as the federal and state constitutions. Change came in the early 19th century at the fault line between generations. A forgetting occurred, Yeats posited. Lawmakers of the early republic did not know how black people had contributed to the nation's founding and hence were entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens. In this sense, Yeats's aim was partly to restore that past to the nation's political and legal memory. To achieve this, he compiled a history of lawmakers and their deliberations in which he found the development of anti-black prejudice in courts, constitutional conventions, and legislatures. He followed the professional lives of men whose work included roles from low-level administrator to convention delegate and judge. Their ideas about free black Order. people moved with them. The chair recognizes Most the gentleman was from Maryland, argument Mr. Raskin. Mr. Chairman, President Trump's tweet drew tens of thousands of Americans to Washington to form the angry crowd that would be transformed on January the 6th into a violent mob. Dr. Donnell Harvin, who was the Chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for D.C., told the committee how his team saw Trump's December 19th tweet unite violent groups across the spectrum on the far right. We, we, we got derogatory information from OSINT suggesting that uh, some very, very violent individuals uh, were organizing uh, to come to D.C. And not only were they um, organizing to come to D.C., but they were uh, these groups uh, these non-aligned uh, groups were aligning. Um, and so the, 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 the red, all the red flags went up at that point. You know, when you have our militia, um, uh, you know, collaborating with white supremacy groups, collaborating with um, uh, conspiracy theory groups online, all for the common goal, you start seeing uh, what we call in, in you know, terrorism a blended ideology, and that's a very, very bad sign. Then when they were clearly across, not just across one platform, but across multiple platforms of these groups coordinating, not just like chatting, hey, how's it going, you know, <laughs> what's the weather like where you're at, 
but like, what are you bringing? What are you wearing? Uh, you know, where, where, where do we meet up? Uh, do you have plans for the Capitol? That's operational. That's like pre-operational intelligence, right? Um, and that, that and is we're back that with the hearings. clearly alarming. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are two key groups that responded immediately to President Trump's call. The Proud Boys are a far-right street-fighting group that glorifies violence and white supremacy. The Oath Keepers are extremists who promote a wide range of conspiracy theories and sought to act as a private paramilitary force for Donald Trump. The Department of Justice has charged leaders of both groups with seditious conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States on January the 6th. Trump's December 19th tweet motivated these two extremist groups, which have historically not worked together to coordinate their activities. December 19th at 10.22 a.m., just hours after President Trump's tweet, Kelly Meggs, the head of the Florida Oath Keepers, declared an alliance among the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the Florida Three Percenters, another militia group. He wrote, we have decided to work together and shut this shit down. Phone records obtained by the select committee show that later that afternoon, Mr. Meggs called Proud Boys leader Enrique Terrio, and they spoke for several minutes. The very next day, the Proud Boys got to work. The Proud Boys launched an encrypted chat called the Ministry of Self-Defense. The committee obtained hundreds of these messages, which show strategic and tactical planning about January the 6th, including maps of Washington, D.C. that pinpoint the location of police. In the weeks leading up to the attack, leaders in both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers worked with Trump allies. One such ally was Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, Trump's former national security advisor and one of the participants in the unhinged meeting at the White House on December 18th. He also had connections to the Oath Keepers. This photo from December 12th shows Flynn and Patrick Byrne, another Trump ally who was present at that December 18th meeting, guarded by indicted Oath Keeper Roberto Minuta. Another view of this scene shows Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes in the picture as well. Another central figure with ties to this network of extremist groups was Roger Stone, a political consultant and longtime confidant of President Trump. He pardoned both Flynn and Stone in the weeks between the election on November 3rd and January 6th. In the same time frame, Stone communicated with both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers regularly. The committee obtained encrypted content from a group, from a group chat called Friends of Stone, FOS, which included Stone, Rhodes, Tario, and Ali Alexander. The chat focused on various pro-Trump events in November and December of 2020, as well as January 6th. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this, central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. 
Kelly Sorrell, a lawyer who assists the Oath Keepers and a volunteer lawyer for the Trump campaign, explained to the committee how Roger Stone and other figures brought extremists of different stripes and views together. You mentioned that Mr. Stone wanted to start the Stop the Steal series of rallies. Who did you consider the leader of these rallies? It sounds like, from what you just said, it was Mr. Stone, Mr. Jones, and Mr. Ali Alexander. Is that correct? Those are the ones that became like the, the center point for everything. We'll learn more from Ms. Murphy about these individuals and their involvement in the days leading up to the violent attack on January 6th. We'll also hear how they were allowed to speak at a rally for President Trump the night before January 6th, even though organizers had expressed serious concerns about their violent and extremist rhetoric directly to Mark Meadows. And you'll hear testimony from White House aides who were with the president as he watched the crowd from the Oval Office and will testify about how excited he was for the following day. Let me note now that our investigation continues on these critical issues. We have only shown a small fraction of what we have found. I look forward to the public release of more of our findings later, Mr. Chairman, and I now yield back. Gentleman yields back. Chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Florida, Ms. Murphy. During our most recent hearing, the committee showed some evidence of what President Trump, Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, and other White House officials knew about the potential for violence on January 6th. And despite this information, they made no effort to cancel the rally, halt the march to the Capitol, or even to lower the temperature among President Trump's supporters. Katrina Pearson, one of the organizers of January 6th rally and a former campaign spokeswoman for President Trump, grew increasingly apprehensive after learning that multiple activists had been proposed as speakers for the January 6th rally. These included some of the people we discussed earlier in this hearing. Roger Stone, a longtime outside advisor to President Trump. Alex Jones, the founder of the conspiracy theory website InfoWars. And Ali Alexander, an activist known for his violent political rhetoric. On December 30th, Ms. Pearson exchanged text messages with another key rally organizer about why people like Mr. Alexander and Mr. Jones were being suggested as speakers at the president's rally on January 6th. Ms. Pearson's explanation was POTUS, and she remarked that the president likes the crazies. The committee asked Ms. Pearson about these messages, and this is what she said. So when you said that he likes the crazies, were you talking about President Trump? Yes, I was talking about President Trump. He loved people who viciously defended him in public. But consistent in terms of the support for these people, at least with what the president likes, from what you could tell. Yes, the, the people that would be very, very vicious in publicly defending him. On January 2nd, Ms. Pearson's concerns about the potential rally speakers had grown serious enough that she reached out to Mr. Meadows directly. She wrote, Good afternoon. Would you mind giving me a call regarding this January 6th event? Things have gotten crazy and I desperately need some direction, please. According to phone records obtained by the committee, Ms. Pearson received a phone call from Mr. Meadows eight minutes later. Here's what Ms. Pearson said about that conversation. So what specifically did you tell him though about other 
other events? Just that there were a bunch of entities coming in. Um, some were very suspect, but they're going to be on other on other stages, um, some on other days. A very, very brief overview um, of what was actually happening um, and why I raised the red flags. And when you told him that people were very suspect, what, what did, did you tell him what you meant by that? Or what did you convey to him about what your, um, the problems with these folks? I think I even texted him some of my concerns, um, but I did briefly go over some of the concerns that I had raised to everybody with Alex Jones or Ali Alexander and some of the rhetoric that they were doing. I probably mentioned to him um, that they had already caused trouble at other capitals or, or at the previous event, the previous march that they did for protesting, um, and I just had a concern about it. Ms. Pearson was especially concerned about Ali Alexander and Alex Jones because in November 2020, both men and some of their supporters had entered the Georgia State Capitol to protest the results of the 2020 election. Ms. Pearson believed that she mentioned this to Mark Meadows on this January 2nd call. Notably, January 2nd is the same day on which, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, Ms. Meadows, Mr. Meadows warned her of things that things might get real, real bad on January 6th. After her January 2nd call with Mr. Meadows, Katrina Pearson sent an email to fellow rally organizers. She wrote, POTUS expectations are to have something intimate at the ellipse and call on everyone to march to the Capitol. President's own documents suggest that the president had decided to call on his supporters to go to the Capitol on January 6th, but that he chose not to widely announce it until his speech on the ellipse that morning. The committee has obtained this draft, updated uh, undated tweet from the National Archives. It includes a stamp stating, President has seen. The draft tweet reads, I will be making a big speech at 10 a.m. on January 6th at the Ellipse, south of the White House. Please arrive early. Massive crowds expected. March to the Capitol after. Stop the steal. Although this tweet was never sent, rally organizers were discussing and preparing for the march to the Capitol in the days leading up to January 6th. This is a January 4th text message from a rally organizer to Mike Lindell, the MyPillow CEO. The organizer says, you know, this stays between us. We're having a second stage at the Supreme Court again after the ellipse. POTUS is going to have us march there slash the Capitol. It cannot get out about the second stage because people will try and set up another and sabotage it. It can also not get out about the march because I will be in trouble with the National Park Service and all the agencies. But POTUS is going to just call for it, quote, unexpectedly. The end of the message indicates that the president's plan to have his followers march to the Capitol was not being broadly discussed. And then on the morning of January 5th, Ali Alexander, whose firebrand style concerned Katrina Pearson, sent a similar text to a conservative journalist. Mr. Alexander said, tomorrow, ellipse, then U.S. Capitol. Trump is supposed to order us to the Capitol at the end of his speech, but we will see. President Trump did follow through on his plan, using his January 6th speech to tell his supporters to march to the Capitol on January 6th. The evidence confirms that this was not a spontaneous call to action, but rather was a deliberate strategy decided upon in advance by the president. 
Another part of the president's strategy involves certain members of Congress who amplified his unsupported assertions that the election had been stolen. In the weeks after the election, the White House coordinated closely with President Trump's allies in Congress to disseminate his false claims and to encourage members of the public to fight the outcome on January 6. We know that the president met with various members to discuss January 6 well before the joint session. The president's private schedule for De December 21, 2020 shows a private meeting with Republican members of Congress. We know that Vice President Pence, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and Rudy Giuliani also attended that meeting. We obtained an email that was sent from Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama to Mark Meadows setting up that meeting. The subject line is, White House meeting December 21st regarding January 6th. In his email, Congressman Brooks explained that he had not asked anyone to join him in the, quote, January 6th effort. Because in his view, quote, only citizens can exert the necessary influence on senators and congressmen to join this fight against massive voter fraud and election theft. At this point, you may also recall testimony given in our earlier hearing by Acting Attorney General Richard Donahue, who said that the President asked the Department of Justice to, quote, just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. According to White House visitor logs obtained by the committee, members of Congress present at the White House on December 21st included Congressman Brian Babin, Andy Biggs, Matt Gates, Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, Andy Harris, Jody Heiss, Jim Jordan, and Scott Perry. Then Congresswoman-elect Marjorie Taylor Greene was also there. We heard testimony in an early hearing that a pardon was ultimately requested by Congressman Mo Brooks and other members of Congress who attended this meeting. We've asked witnesses what happened during the December 21st meeting, and we've learned that part of the discussion centered on the role of the vice president during the counting of the electoral votes. These members of Congress were discussing what would later be known as the Eastman theory, which was being pushed by attorney John Eastman. In one of our earlier hearings, you heard in great detail that President Trump was trying to convince Vice President Pence to do something illegal. His White House counsel confirmed all of that in testimony last week. Your view, Mr. Cipollone, upon that, those discussions with Mr. Philbin, with Greg Jacob, what, what was your assessment as to what the Vice President could or could not do at the joint session? What was my assessment about what he could or couldn't do? Yes, your view of the issue. My view is that the vice president had, didn't have the legal authority to do anything except what he did. They've both told us, Mr. Feldman and Mr. Jacob, that they looked very closely at the Eastman memos, the Eastman theory, and thought that it had no basis, that it was not a strategy that the, the president should pursue. It sounds like that's consistent with your impression as well. My impression would have been informed certainly by them. Campaign senior advisor Jason Miller told us that Mr. Cipollini thought John Eastman's theories were nutty, something Mr. Cipollini wouldn't refute. We received testimony from various people about this. About one was Jason Miller, who was a, a campaign, um, said that the way it was communicated to me was that Pat Cipollini thought the idea was nutty, and at one point confronted Eastman basically with the same sentiment. That I don't have any reason to contradict what he said. On January 4th, John Eastman went to the White House to meet with the President and Vice President. 
Mr. Cipollini tried to participate in this meeting, but he was apparently turned away. You didn't go to the meeting office where Easton met with the president and vice president. Do you know, do you remember why you didn't personally attend? I did walk to that meeting and I did go into the Oval Office with the idea of attending that meeting and then I ultimately did not attend that meeting. Why not? The reasons for that are privileged. Okay. Were you asked to not attend the meeting or did you make a personal decision not to attend the meeting? Again, without getting into Recall that Greg Jacob, the vice president's counsel, stated that Mr. Eastman acknowledged he would lose nine to zero if his legal theory were challenged in the Supreme Court. Mr. Cipollini had reviewed Mr. Eastman's legal theory and expressed his view repeatedly that the vice president was right. He even offered to take the blame for the vice president's position. I have a great deal of respect for Vice President Pence. I work with him very closely. I think he understood my opinion. I think he understood my opinion afterwards as well. I think he did a great service to this country. And I think I, I suggested to somebody that he should be get, given the presidential medal of freedom for, for his actions. Earlier this year, a federal district, district court judge concluded that President Trump and Mr. Eastman, relying on Mr. Eastman's theory, more likely than not, violated multiple federal criminal laws in their pressure campaign against the vice president. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag your it. And by the way, be good to yourself and the people around you. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.